Church, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is where we continue to press forward this morning, looking at our text for today, which is verses 8 through 15, our largest portion of text to look at so far in this Roman series, with this, of course, only being session 3. Uh, nonetheless, so there used to be a running joke in my student ministry days about how many times I would say the words biblical community or any combination or reference to community. In fact, one time at one of our student ministry events, a student got up and uh, her, she was going to do her best impression of me. And that was, in fact, the focus of her impression was how many times she could say community in a sentence. So it was, uh, of course, uh, a well-pointed uh, well joke. But nonetheless, biblical community and community of faith are the context of how God shapes and molds us for service to his gospel. And that was, of course, the focus of me so many times throughout my student ministry days, wanting to point students to biblical community, to be in community with one another, holding one another accountable, rejoicing with one another, all the things that come with being a part of the church. So the, the redefined people of God set apart for the gospel as servants of Christ Jesus. That's the summation of what we have looked at over the last two weeks for our first two sessions in the book of Romans. The redefined people of God set apart for the gospel as servants of Christ Jesus. Following Paul's example, we are to be set apart servants for the gospel of God and the glory of God among the nations. So this redeemed purpose and calling redefines even us as Gentiles, as saints, for the people of God. Now, this morning I want us to see how we are to focus our attentions and purposes in the community of faith for the glory of God among the nations. So if you'll stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read our text for this morning, coming from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you through your spirit at work, through your word, would impact change in our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would inform our gatherings, that you would inform 
our relationships with one another, that you would inform the focus of how we are to apply the gospel, not only within our lives individually, but how that therefore shapes and molds who we are corporately as a people. God, I pray that as we look at your word, as we exposit your word, that you would guard my lips from error, that you would focus our hearts and minds' attention on you, and that this would be to the praise of your glory among your people and among the world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So we started chapter 1, and as we looked at uh, our first portion of Scripture, that being verses 1 through 4, rather 1 through 5, as it were, we, uh, in looking at those first few verses, we talked about the typical Greek letter and the Greek uh, greeting in a Greek letter, which, of course, Paul is following. Of course, he's writing to here to the church at Rome. So that might confuse you. Like, what do you mean Greek? And we're talking about uh, writing to Romans. Of course, Paul is a Jew. So uh, Greek or the other uh, more lofty term that's used for it was Hellenism, right? It's, it's the culture that inspired uh, the ancient world was that of the Greek culture. So the Greek letter included a greeting, which we have looked at over the last two weeks, but it also included a thanksgiving, and a prayer. Most of Paul's letters follow this model of giving a greeting and then a thanksgiving and then a prayer. In Romans, we see this same pattern. However, the thanksgiving portion is abbreviated and linked to his prayer for the church at Rome. And that's what we're looking at this morning is this thanksgiving and prayer, this abbreviated thanksgiving, which is coupled together with his prayer for the church and rather for all believers, as, as you'll see, serving as an exposition of his desires to be among the believers there. And so we start here with our first verse for this morning, which is verse 8. And he lists this as first. He lists this as the number one thing which he wants to address among them. And he uses this thanksgiving portion of his letter to go ahead and begin his address to them as the first portion has been his greeting, which he has expounded upon and perfectly summarized the gospel. But we have here first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So Paul's first thing that he wants to communicate to the church at Rome was his deep abiding thankfulness for their abounding faith in the gospel, there are an overabundance of references that Paul makes throughout his letters, as I've already said, to his thankfulness to God for the faith of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want us to see how he takes what is just a typical method of writing, a typical writing style in the ancient world, and he wants to focus where his thankfulness goes. And what his thankfulness is for. So he begins his letters that they may know who the thankfulness goes to and who it is for. Uh, just look at some of these examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So there, the thanks is to God for the church 
because of who? God's grace that was given to them in Christ. We continue, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So it's the effect of the gospel in their lives that is spurning forth this abundant thankfulness to God for his saving them and multiplying that saving grace among that church. Philippians 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He goes on to expound upon that later on in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So therefore, they too are to be constantly thankful to God, making those things known to him. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. 2 Timothy 1. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Corporate thankfulness is a distinctive characteristic of servants of Christ Jesus. We've clear, clearly and carefully defined just from this first greeting and introduction into this letter what it means to be a servant of Christ Jesus, to make ourselves subservient to Christ, the true king. Not Caesar Augustus, nor any Caesar after, but Christ Jesus. And one of those things that we need to know as the people of God, as the redefined people of God, by His grace, through His gospel, set apart for the gospel, is that our thankfulness for one another, among one another, is a distinctive characteristic of servants of Christ Jesus. Hearing testimony of faithful brothers and sisters sharing the gospel ought to bring us to a humble thankfulness for God's powerful grace at work in the gospel. And it ought to do so for two main reasons. So I want to give us two reasons here as to why simply rejoicing and hearing the testimony of God's working in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters or whether that be a formal testimony of their coming to faith or whether that be a more informal testimony of what God is doing simply in their life at the moment. Either way, for two main reasons that I can think of, it should bring us to a humbled thankfulness for God's powerful grace at work in the gospel. First, the obvious one, is that we see the glory of God's working in their life. And it moves us to abundant thankfulness for his grace among the saints, that he is continuing to make himself known, that he is continuing to draw more people to himself and rescue more and more people from slavery to sin to instead be servants of Christ Jesus. That he would allow us to know that person, to be in fellowship, to be united with that brother or sister, to be influenced by that brother or sister, and to be enlightened to see his work 
in their lives. So that's the first and more obvious reason why it should bring us to a humble thankfulness upon hearing and knowing and being in fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The second one, and maybe not the more subtle way in which seeing the transformative grace of the gospel at work in fellow believers should move us to humble thankfulness is that when we see the fruits of the gospel at work in our fellow believers, we should be moved to thankfulness for the work of the gospel in our own lives. Because it should invariably move us immediately as we see the gospel working in the life of a brother or sister to immediately remember God's continued grace and work in our lives and trace us in that train of thought all the way back to when he first drew us to himself. So when's the last time you were humbled by the brothers and sisters that the Lord has put in your life? When was the last time that you were truly humbled in thankfulness for the unity and the community of, of faith that we have with one another here at Southside? Or even beyond that in each of your lives individually? How long has it been since your daily prayers consisted of regular thanksgiving to the Lord for the community of faith that he has forged for us here? Our membership is meaningful because it identifies us as one with Christ. And as such, unified with one another. This is what it means to be a member here. That we are one with Christ first and foremost and therefore one with one another. That we love Christ and that that, and that, that love has compelled us to lovingly hold one another to the standards which Christ has set for his church. And maybe you notice a pattern in all of those verses in which Paul is openly and authentically letting these churches know that they are a clear focus of his thanksgiving to God. Each and every time, he not only tells them that he is giving thanks to God for them, so not just simply, I'm thankful for you, not just a simple, I'm thankful for you and your church, but he tells them why. He expounds on why he is thankful. And the reason for Paul's thanksgiving is twofold. And look there for our text. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Because your faith is is proclaimed. So the first, so again, I said there's twofold thanksgiving here. First, their faith. Paul's primary reason for giving thanks for his brothers and sisters is their saving faith in Christ Jesus. And this takes us back to verse 5 of last week. Through whom, right, through Jesus Christ our Lord, as we've seen revealed in the gospel, which was promised beforehand, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, for what purpose? What purpose has he shown his grace in our lives? What purpose has he equipped us to serve the church? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. 
And this is what Paul is saying is reflected in the life of the church at Rome. So not only is this what he has called those who are called to serve in the church, but this is a calling for all Christians is to be thankful for faith amongst brothers and sisters and to be spurned to see that faith grow and to see those whom we call brothers and sisters grow in number. So this takes us back to verse 5, which we spent ample time on last week, where we see faith brings about in us an obedience which serves the purposes of the greater glory of God to be made known among the nations. And Paul's thankfulness for his co-laborers in Christ stems from the truth that they are united in Christ, and for that he is abundantly thankful. And so second, what's the second fold there? Because it says twofold thanksgiving. First is that their faith that they have faith, that they are in the faith, that he can call them brothers and sisters because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So the second fold there is God's glory. The primary fruit and reward of Paul's thankfulness in the faith of his fellow brothers and sisters is that God is being glorified all the more among the nations as the faith of the gospel grows and spreads. Rome, of course, being the hub of political and civil and um, international trade and all these things that are happening in the culture amongst this large city. And he is thankful that these brothers and sisters are there living it out amongst a multicultural city as it would then branch out further into all the world. And this brings me to this point that when our brothers and sisters grow, God gets the greater glory. And that ought to be one of, if not the foremost reason for our thankfulness in our unity and in our community of faith. This creates almost a mirror image of verse 5 being lived out. And what is he thankful for among the Christians who are united in Rome? What does Paul see as, the, as his own personal calling for the gospel of God for which he has been set apart to continue to bring about the obedience of faith for the purpose of God's glory among the nations? You see it there. Through whom, that is Christ Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. What is he thankful for in the believers at Rome among other churches to whom he writes? their testimony of faith which is being made known among the nations. This should be the focus of our prayers for our brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you that you are using him or her for the glory of your name. Or Lord, bind them to your word because that's the other side of that. That if we see a brother or sister who is straying in the faith or struggling in the faith, Lord, bind them to your word. Draw them from wandering that their testimony of faith may resound to the praise of your glory among the nations. We continue as we pick back up in verse 9. For God is my witness, 
whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul's thankfulness to God is for his fellow believers in Rome, and it overflows with a compelling desire to be among them. He wants to be with them. He wants to be in communion with them and to to take communion with them. This is indicated by that little word which I often mention for us to regularly take note of in our Bible reading. It's that little word, the first word there of verse 9, for. Paul's thankfulness for the church and his desire to see them with his own eyes are inextricably linked. I'm thankful to God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being made known among all the world. And because of this, as God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, I mention you. I pray for you. I want to come see you. We are obligated to pray for and impact the growth of our brothers and sisters. And I often use that word obligatory, obligated, but in a, in a negative context. I use it to rather refer to the impact of faithless or, or spiritless religiosity, right? Just that kind of obligatory attitude that uh, required faith or that required work that we often approach things, we often approach things with that attitude. But here I'm using in the context of something that we ought to do as believers, and indeed something that is modeled for us. So not everything that is obligatory need be approached with an obligatory attitude, nonetheless, is what I'm trying to get there. That we are obligated to pray for and impact the growth of our brothers and sisters. So at this point, I want to encourage and exhort each one of us not to fall prey to being too comfortable with certain subgroups within our congregation, but to make intentional effort to build meaningful relationships across our church body. What do I mean by that? See, God, in his grace, he gives us subgroups of people whom we form tight connections with through shared experiences, commonalities, like interests. And we ought to rejoice in these connections and truly see them as a grace of God. However, we cannot allow that to cause us to fall into this malaise in which the subgroup becomes the only people that we share deep fellowship with. And so you think, you're like, when was the last time someone from this side of the sanctuary opened their house or shared a meal with someone from this side of the sanctuary? And I can actually tell you because I was there. It was just less than a month ago. It was the, the Davis family had us over for their Sunday school Christmas party. And I can tell you how enjoyable that time was as we saw people whom 
might have different subgroups that they connect with across our church body, but we were all together as one group in that meeting. And in our meeting, we were able to sit around a fire and we shared things that we were anxious for coming up ahead in the new year, things that we were excited for, things that we were praying toward, all of that. And then we had the opportunity to pray over one another in those things. And it was beautiful. And that's, that's the idea is that we, we are to come together and pray for one another, not simply within our subgroups, but across the body as a whole. The next thing that we see, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking, and so he tells us exactly what he is asking in these prayers of thankfulness to God. He is also asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. You see, too, we too often flippantly use this term as a tag on at the end of something. We'll go about something we desire to do and just to make sure that we sound somewhat righteous, we'll throw in a Lord willing on the end of whatever it is that we're talking about, right? And Paul realizes that as a servant of Christ Jesus set apart for the gospel of God, called to be an apostle, if he is going to do or accomplish anything, it will only be by the will of the God who has saved him, called him, and set him apart. No matter how strong Paul's own desire is to go to Rome, as he has attempted to many times, but been held back by God's will as he sees it, even though he knows that it would be fruitful for him to go to Rome, not just for the church at Rome, but for himself, as we're going to see here in a little bit, he knows that ultimately the reason he's not reached Rome yet is because God has not willed it. That God has willed him to do other things before reaching there. So as we consider not only our own lives, but as we engage in biblical community, as we engage in praying for the community of faith across all parts and sects of our, uh, of our church body, let us not be the type of brother or sister who will pursue nor encourage one another to accomplish our wildest dreams. Let us not be the type of brother and sister that would proclaim over a brother and sister, dream it and achieve it, or speak it into existence. But as we pray for a brother or sister, God's will ought to ever be the framework of our prayers. In order for God's will to be the framework of our prayers, though, and here's the challenge, it must be the framework of our worldview. So that doesn't happen unless we are constantly viewing everything through the lens of God's word. If we want to know God's will, we must know his word. So if we're going to pray God's will over a brother or sister, we must pray God's word over that brother or sister. And this goes back to verses 2 through 4 of Paul's greeting. What should we see? This gospel, which he has been set apart for, which is spurning him on to have this thankfulness for the gospel as it's worked in the life of the church at Rome, as they are in the faith. 
And that brings him to a desire to come and see them. It was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul sees, he sees that God has accomplished all of this according to his providential purposes. He's accomplished the gospel. He's brought about the gospel. He's brought about saving knowledge of himself according to his providential purposes. And therefore he's saying he set me apart to join in these providential purposes of making that gospel, that providential gospel, known in your hearts. Therefore, if it be the Lord's will, it will happen, is essentially what Paul is saying. In order for us to know God's will, we must know him as he's revealed himself in his word. We read this in Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him, as in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Ephesians, of course, is often referred to as the cliff notes of Romans, right? And so in here, he's saying the same thing to the church at Ephesus. That God accomplishes all things according to what? The counsel of his will. And that we have been predestined according to this purpose that we would know the gospel and make the gospel known. And how is God accomplishing this? He's accomplishing it through the same way that he accomplished the gospel. He promised it beforehand because it's providential. We see this. Paul goes on to expound in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. All things work together. They work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. See, God, God's will, he is accomplishing it. And so whether or not we experience struggle or triumph, good, bad, whatever be in between, God is working all of that together ultimately for his providential purposes, not for what we may call good, not for what we want to rest in and we'll just want to be in this season. I want to, to be on top always. But no, God causes all things to work together for his good, for those who are called according to his purposes. We read this of God in Isaiah chapter 46. Of course, Isaiah writing to those in exile prophesying many times of the coming Messiah who would reestablish God's kingdom and who would be God with us. And we read this in Isaiah 46 of God, verses 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. So the, the greater context of what Isaiah is saying here is he's, he's addressing the fact that they, the people of God at this time, have been continuously rebellious gone continuously to their idols, 
So he says, which of your idols can answer me? For they're, they're only made of wood. And so he says, remember this, stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Verse 9, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And here it is, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so it is to this will that Paul makes himself subservient. Having seen in the gospel how God has providentially worked all of this out in Christ Jesus as he promised it beforehand in the prophets, as he promised there would be a son from from David who would rule over God's kingdom and declare his people free and who would be declared the son of God in power. As Paul has seen all of this, made clear to him God's providential working, God's willing All of this in the gospel, in Christ, it is to this will that Paul says, my desire is to come to you. But it is by God's will that I may last succeed in coming to you. And therefore, God's will ought to ever be the framework of our prayers as he is the one who declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Because his counsel stands and he will accomplish his purposes. When we see all of life in accordance with God's word, we can't help but see God's will as the ultimate determiner of all things. So what is the goal that Paul hopes to see the will of God achieve in his coming to the church at Rome? He wants to be there, but ultimately he wants to be there by the will of God. And once he gets there, what does he hope to see God's will accomplish in his being there? Well, we continue. Verse 11. There's that word again. Four. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I've made reference to this particular text, these two verses, verse 11 and 12, many times over the last year uh, as we returned from our mission trips and shared our testimonies of God's working amongst our brothers and sisters abroad and our mission partners. And Paul says here that he desires to be mutually encouraged. Not only that he would come to encourage them as he longs to come to see them, So he's not taking this stance of being the one who is high and mighty, lofty apostle that he's going to come and he has all the answers he's going to have and come all the wisdom to, to share. But I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I want to strengthen you. I want God to use me by God's will that I come to you to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Notice that Paul, but subtly but, but definitively, reassures the church that being firmly established in faithful obedience is not something that is just for leaders. He desires to go to Rome to encourage these believers. 
He wants to see them, see how they're living out their faith, see how they are dealing with controversies of which he does not address any, but he wants to see, like, how are you, how are you addressing those things? See how they're sharing the gospel for the glory of God. See how that faith is being made known. How are they not only living out the gospel, but sharing it? And ultimately, he wants to help guide and correct and reprove all of this that they may continue to grow. But that's not all. He knows that in doing all of this, in sharing testimonies, in breaking bread together, in reading scripture together, that he will be mutually encouraged in his own faith. And he acknowledges this in his greeting, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So this obedience of faith is continuing to spurn forth in his own life. He's continuing, he's having to continue to walk in obedience of faith. An established faith produces obedience which seeks for mutual upbuilding in the faith. So for those of us who have an established faith, we must know and understand that the faith which has been given us by God's grace is to be ever growing, strengthening, and deepening. Because an established faith is not a stagnant faith. So please don't for one second think that you have arrived in the faith. That is that you have come to some level of knowledge or status in which there is no need for growth, for service, or for humility. Well, I'm just too old to be of any service to the kingdom. Not so. I'm too young. No one will take me seriously. Well, you have to take your own faith seriously first before anyone else is going to take you seriously for it. I've been a believer ever since I was young. And I've, I've done this many mission trips. I've served on this many committees, blah, 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 blah. And? Seriously, so what? This is obedience that flows from faith, not the other way around. So the reality is it doesn't matter how much stuff you've done for the kingdom. Our work of obedience isn't over until the Lord calls us home. Therefore, an established faith cannot be a stagnant faith. And an established faith is focused upward and outward more than it is inward. What we see is that inward focus is always for the purpose of sanctification of upward and outward focus. Maybe a different way of saying that would be that our inward focus of faith constantly redirects us outward as we are sanctified inward. We are then focused upward in glory to God for what he's doing in our lives, shaping us into his image more and more through sanctification and outward as we're sharing the gospel. I want to use a different text here. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think perfectly explains what I'm talking about here of established faith focusing us inward. Yes, it does focus us inward, but that inward focus then refocuses us upward and outward. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20. 
And as you can see there, if your Bible has subheadings, this is in the context of a verse which I have leaned on and am looking forward to, I plan on writing about in uh, my February newsletter. But it's the context of the verse in which he's talking about a, a worker approved by God rightly handling the word of truth to his protege, his disciple, Timothy. Paul is, that is. And pick up in verse 20. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So we'll pause right there at verse 21. So what the, the imagery and the analogy that Paul is using here is that you've got some vessels in the house that are ornate and they're used for holding and used for great um, honorable use amongst the household. And then you've got other vessels. So that's like saying you've got some vessels in your house that hold food and they're, they're clean. You've got some vessels in their house that, that hold pictures and display kind of your family and then you've got the toilet, right? And so, or you've got a, a Lowe's bucket, which has multi-purpose uses and holds multi-purpose things, right? So, so some, they're made of wood and clay, honorable use, dishonorable use. And he's saying, what he's saying here is it's, it's possible, dishonorable vessel to being an honorable vessel, it comes through fleeing these things, pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, right? So that's the inward focus, so we have to focus on, on as the Lord draws us to himself and gives us faith by grace through faith that we come to be saved. And now we have to focus like, okay, how do I continually have to die to my old way of life, die to that dishonorable vessel that I may continually be made to be an honorable vessel, useful to the master of the house. And as I'm seeking those things and, and seeking those things out in God's word and pursuing these things of faith and love and peace which are expounded upon in God's word for me, I'm to do so just simply continuing to focus inwardly, just continuing to do so on my own, running this race alone. No. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You know, to do these things in the community of faith. So that's that inward focus. And then it goes upward first and foremost because the glory is ultimately going to God. The God is the one who is doing this work in us. He's doing all these things. And then it's also to be outward, that is, to those who are immediately around us and in front of us as we continue to seek to share the gospel. We can go back now to our main text back in Romans as Paul continues this section on his prayer and the fruits that come from this prayer or that he's hoping to come from this prayer by God's will, we pick back up in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. So this is where he expounds upon what he's talking about. Like, I've, I've longed to come to you and I've been held back by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, right? And he said, I do not want you to be aware. I have intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Prevented by what? Go back. God's will, right? In order 
that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So it's a, in the, the fruit that he hopes to come from finally being able to come and see them by God's will, as he's been held back from doing so far, is that a harvest may be reaped. Among you who are already in the faith, so what does that mean? That they would continue to grow, going back to verse 5, that we've received the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So I continue to see you growing in the faith, growing in those acts of obedience that come from faith. So I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So his desire here, the desire that's spurning him on then is given us in verse 14, that he is under obligation. Don't miss that word. See, we we used that word obligation earlier and now Paul himself uses it to speak of what he is under obligation to do. He's under obligation to what? Here he is, servant of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel, apostle. And what's his obligation? It's not to serve himself, not to, to come and make sure they know who's in charge. But he's under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. In verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. His idea of being mutually encouraged is that they, as he reaps a harvest among them, that he would be encouraged by them, they would be encouraged by him, and then ultimately that this gospel, as he preaches the gospel, would reap a harvest among even more Gentiles, among the educated and the uneducated, the rich, the poor, among all, among the world, among the nations, that God's glory in the gospel would be made known. This is his obligation. A faithful obedience is always mission-minded and forward-thinking. A faithful obedience is always mission-minded and forward-thinking. To be set apart for the gospel means to be united with and subject to those whom the Lord has also set apart for the gospel, his church. And then as we join together, we don't stop there. We don't say, we don't stop at the individual level. We don't stop at just the corporate level of community of faith and just be satisfied gathering here week in, week out and just have our own little club. But rather, it's to be mission-minded and forward-thinking, constantly thinking that as we live out the gospel, as we preach the gospel, that we would see a harvest reaped amongst ourselves as we continue to grow in the faith and amongst the nations. Some of you haven't even thought once, let alone twice, about going and signing up for one of those mission trip interest sheets out there. And listen, when when it comes to international travel in particular, it can be particularly difficult to coordinate large groups. But Ronnie and I were talking about this, I think it was just this last Wednesday. We want those problems. We want those difficulties. We want to say, well, we've just got so many people signed up. We've got to figure out what to do with all these people. Those are good problems to have. 
And maybe some of you haven't even thought twice about signing up because you're confident that that's not the role the Lord has created you to play. You know your role is to be a sender, not a goer. But whether you're a sender or a goer, a faithful obedience is always mission-minded and forward-thinking, soaked in prayer to the will of God for the glory of God. May it be so amongst us, church. Let's pray. God, we love you. I pray that as we see and we hear of the importance of understanding the effects of the gospel, having brought us from death to life in Christ, this gospel which you achieve and accomplish and promised from beforehand through your prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning your Son, that we were ultimately rebellious against you and that you patiently and faithfully set forth your promises, sent your prophets to declare your promises and accomplished all of that in Christ. I pray that those who don't know the goodness of the gospel, have not submitted themselves to the goodness of the gospel, have not been saved, that you would draw them to yourselves, to yourself in those truths. Lord, for those of us who have, I pray that you would bring about in us an obedience of faith for the sake of your name among all the nations which comes and, and comes from and is continually producing an abundant thankfulness amongst ourselves for one another. So that we would constantly spurn one another long in thankfulness to reap a harvest for your name and for your glory among the nations by your will. We pray all of this in the name of the one whom you have revealed that you have accomplished all of this. In the name of the one whom all your promises find, yes and amen. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.